Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders for our church. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're really glad that you're, you're here with us. This morning, we must consider a sobering reality of life in God's world, which is that some of our most common coping mechanisms will never work. Some of the things that we turn to to try to make sense of our lives, to make sense of our world, to make sense of God's purposes for our lives within the world, these things we turn to will never be able to explain what is happening to us. They'll never make sense to us. What are these coping mechanisms? Well, this morning I went to address two of them because Isaiah addresses two of them. That when things get hard, when life is confusing, when hopes are dashed, or sometimes when we're just really tired at the end of a long day, sometimes some people cope with this by looking within and following their hearts. And other people at times cope with those things by looking for God and following their hearts. The first coping mechanism, that of looking within and following my heart, this, this is when I build up walls and fortresses to isolate myself, to segment my, my life, sharply dividing my public life from my private life, often to justify things that I know can't be justified. And that second coping mechanism of, of uh, looking for God while following my heart. This is the person who goes bananas for Jesus. They're always wearing Christian t-shirts and listening to Christian music and even pursuing discipline to read scripture, to pray, to sing, to serve. But these things are done so that I might feel better. So I might feel closer to God, possibly so I can check a box or pat myself on the back. And both of these approaches will never work. They will never enable you to make sense of your life and what's happening to you. Isaiah addressed these two approaches long ago in the 8th century BC. In chapter 29 of his book of prophecy, if you have one of the church Bibles, we'll be on page 341. And there Isaiah addresses the two things that will never make sense. And you can see in your outline, they are religious fervor and self-protection. Let me pray, and then I'll read the first half of the chapter. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. Please help us by your word, by the fact that you have penetrated into our lives, you have broken through to us, to enable us to make sense of what's going on around us. And help us to make sense of even those things that will never make sense. That we might turn from them and trust in you fully. Please draw us near that our hearts might be close to you. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've entered a section of Isaiah's book where he gives six woes. There are six times in this section where he begins a section with the word woe, or the ESV sometimes translates it as 
ah, but it's the same word in Hebrew, introducing a curse pronounced. Isaiah highlights a number of earthly powers that we cannot trust in, and he pronounces a curse in these things because they will always fail us. Last week, we saw at the beginning of this section, chapter 28, he called out the people's pride, their drunkenness with the works of their hands. And this week, we hit two more of them. Two of these woes, they're in verses 1 and verse 15. So let me read the first section, verses 1 to 14, where Isaiah says that your religious fervor will never enable you to make sense of life. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel... And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will rage siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper." But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by Yahweh of armies, with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and he awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So here's the first woe we're going to look at today in verses 1 to 14, and Isaiah makes his case in four parts, four poetic stanzas. The first part is in verses 1 to 4 where he tells us that the festal calendar cannot explain your distress. 
In verse 1, Isaiah addresses Ariel. Ariel, Ariel. Which is a reference to the city where David encamped. And later he makes very clear when he says, the multitude of nations fight against Ariel in verse 7. He then says it in verse 8. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. So he makes very clear to us, Ariel is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But why does he say Ariel? Why doesn't he just say Jerusalem? And we can ask that question many times in Isaiah. Why does he keep doing this? He keeps using nicknames. He's fond of nicknames for his people. Chapter 22 referred to this same city as the Valley of Vision. But he he likes nicknames, but especially he likes nicknames because the nicknames help him to drive his point home. In 22, he called them the Valley of Vision because they were people who could no longer see what God was showing them. Now he calls them Ariel because Ariel is a Hebrew word that means altar hearth. See, he says in verse, um, what was it, verse 2, she shall be to me like an Ariel, like an altar hearth. It's, it, the, the altar was the outdoor oven where they would cook their sacrifices. The hearth of it was the part that housed the wood and the fire. He calls the city altar hearth, partly to suggest that it is about to be set on fire. The people who trust in their sacrifices are about to become their own sacrifices and set on fire. Why? The end of verse 1, he says, add year to year, let the feast, the feasts run their round. He's talking about the annual calendar where the Jewish people had three major feasts that each lasted seven days, where all the men of the nation were supposed to gather in Jerusalem and celebrate this feast. And he says, let these feasts run their round. These people are diligently celebrating these festivals to Yahweh. They offer even morning and evening sacrifices every day. They offer monthly memorial sacrifices every month. They celebrate their annual feasts three times each year. They check all the boxes. They show up to the right events and they keep the traditions rolling. Yet, in verse 2, Yahweh will cause distress for these people, making them moan and lament, turning them into something to ignite. In verses 3 and 4, he says, They will quickly go from the spiritual high, from the mountaintop experience, to being ground in the dust. The image is one of him smashing their faces against the ground so they can barely speak. He says that in verse 4, You will speak from the earth. Your speech will come from the dust and be bowed down. The point is this, they are about to face great distress and their religious festivities will be unable to explain what is happening to them. They will be shocked and surprised, but we we did all the festivals. Why is this happening to us? They think they are drawing close to their God even while they move farther and farther away from him. His second point here in verses 5 to 8 is that a spiritual hunger cannot explain the multitude of foes. The second stanza mentions what form Yahweh's visitation will take. He will visit them. But three times in this paragraph, 
he says, the multitude of your foreign foes. Verse 5. Verse 7. The multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel. Verse 8. The multitude of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. The idea here is that their enemies will be many and mighty. And the experience of being under attack, being under siege, will be to them, verses 7 and 8, like a certain kind of dream. Have you ever had the kind of dream that I have all the time? You know where you're dreaming and you trip and fall? And right before you hit the ground, what happens? Does that ever happen to you? This happens to me all the time. Psychoanalyze me later. I'm grateful to discover it was only a dream. And Isaiah is saying that this attack from the multitude... Let me say it this way. Here's what I think he's saying. The the commentaries I checked have a variety of different opinions on how to interpret this part about the dream. Some say that the dream is is that the, the enemies are having this dream. They're hungry for you, but God is going to rescue you, and they'll all be blown away like chaff and they'll still be hungry. Some say that. I have a hard time going with that from the context, the way he's talking about Jerusalem, because the next verse, verse he's going to go right back to warning them about their danger. I think what he's saying is that Israel's having the dream, and it's like they're dreaming that the multitudes have left. They've had victory over their enemies, and they wake up to find they're still there. And it's like, I thought my hunger was satisfied, but I wake up and I'm still hungry. So I suspect that while Isaiah may partly have literal hunger and thirst in mind while they're being besieged by their enemies, the context of the chapter does lead me to see something more spiritual in play, letting their feasts run their round. And he's going to go on in the next stanza to talk about the prophets who can no longer interpret God's visions. And then after that, fearing God, they follow their traditions. He's talking about their spiritual condition. And this leads me to see the issue here as one of spiritual hunger and thirst. They claim to want to hear from God. They say they want to feed on his words, but their lives don't actually bear this out. And so when the enemies come, they have no way to explain what's happening to them. We did all our feasts. We celebrated our festivals. We offered our sacrifices. Why are these enemies attacking us? They will feel like victims, they will be filled with excuses, and they will be left with only platitudes to comfort themselves. Isaiah's third point here, the third part of his argument in verses 9 to 12, is that prophets and teachers cannot explain what God has revealed. Because in verse 9, God threatens to blind them. Blind yourselves and be blind. Verse 10, he will put them into a spiritual stupor, which he defines as their prophets and their seers no longer being able to see or understand. And in particular, they won't be able to see or understand God's words, because in verse 11, God's words, which is a, he's describing all of the visions, all of the stuff that God has been revealing to Isaiah, that Isaiah has been writing down, all this will be handed to them, like a book. And some, verse 11, some may obstinately say, 
that they don't get it because they're unwilling to, to do the hard work of breaking the seal open and reading the book, learning how to understand these things. In verse 12, others may try their hardest, but they will simply be unable to understand what they find in there. They just, I can't read. Maybe they're bored by it. Maybe they think it's not about them. Maybe they believe all this can't really happen to them. Maybe they see it as a book of legends and stories that don't affect real life on earth. But whatever it is, they, don't, they, they can't see it. They don't even want to see it. The point here is that even their teachers will not be able to explain what God has revealed to make sense of their lives. The fourth part of Isaiah's argument here is in verses 13 and 14, which is that verbal praise cannot undo inner resistance. The fourth stanza here, Isaiah gets to the heart of the problem. Here's the essence of what's going on in this, all 14 of these verses. In verse 13, he says, these people draw near with their mouths. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So outwardly, they're going through the motions. They do the right things, but they don't believe it. They don't love it. They're not living it. They fear God. They say they fear God, but they live out that fear as nothing more but a set of religious traditions and commandments handed down to them by men. And so in verse 14, check this out. God promises once more to do wonderful things with this people. And the Hebrew word here for wonderful things has to do with miracles. It's the word that the Old Testament uses about amazing miracles, wonderful, miraculous, wonderful signs. Just like he once turned the Nile River into blood and he stacked up the waters of the Red Sea on the right and on the left so they could walk through on dry ground. So now he will again do something supernatural, something amazing and something unbelievable. He will, you see it? He will make the wisdom of their wisest people perish. And he will make the discernment of their most discerning people hidden. In other words, he will, here's the miracle he's going to do. He's going to block their efforts. He's going to confuse their teachers, thwart their advisors, and make an entire generation fade into irrelevance. Because here's the point, friends. God hates it. When people go through the motions. When they act as though they are serving him. When the true fiber of their being, the direction of their lives, is more about satisfying themselves and living for their own ideals. This chapter is incredibly lucid about the danger of these things. And for this reason, at least four New Testament passages quote from it. Many more allude to it. But Matthew 15 and Mark 4 both quote this passage when Jesus accuses the Jewish leaders of his day of setting aside the word of God in favor of their religious traditions. And Romans 11 verse 8 quotes this passage. 
to argue that generations of Israelites failed to obtain the righteousness they were seeking. Paul says they're seeking righteousness, but they're doing it not to be close to God, but to feel better about themselves. They were looking to themselves and the works of their hands to secure God's favor for them. And then 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19 quotes this passage to make the point that both religious people and secular philosophical people simply cannot make sense of what God has done in Christ. God sent his son to die in the most cruel and shameful way. And you hand that message to people like the words on a book, which we have, and the educated elites of the world are embarrassed by a crucified hero. They can never make sense of it. It's like being handed a scroll, which they can't even read. And so God takes the wisdom of the world and he causes it to perish, to fade away and to become impotent next to his wisdom, the wisdom of the son of God hung on a cross to take away the sin of the world and risen from the dead to become Lord of heaven and earth. Please understand that religious fervor in and of itself will never make sense. You have to get this message of the crucified Jesus risen again who is king of the world. And, and he then takes over your life. Two applications for us from this section. Align your life with your confession. And align your heart with your king. First application. Align your life with your confession. Align your life with your confession. Friends, please make sure that your religion is not something you confess with your mouth, but then it fails to influence the way you live. Where maybe you sing at church about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and then you go home and you yell or you swear at your roommate, your spouse, your children. You ask people maybe here at church how their week was and then you go around telling everybody else what that person confided in you. Or maybe you share in small group about all that you learned from the scripture during the sermon and then you never even open your Bible for the rest of the week. Please align your life with your confession. But second, align your heart with your king. Align your heart with your king. Don't let your heart, the desires of your heart, remain far from him. Don't seek whatever it is that you think will make you happy. Don't just follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Question everything. This is the wisdom of the world that is going to perish. Please understand your God and your king who gave his life for you and who calls you to follow him to give up your life daily, to give up your preferences for the sake of others, and to learn to love what he loves and to seek what he seeks. Your religious fervor in and of itself will never enable you to make sense of your world. 
You've got to see and be satisfied with the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. But that's not all. Isaiah wants to lampoon one more thing that we tend to trust in. Not just religious fervor, but we move on to self-protection. This time he'll make his case with three stanzas in three parts. But let me read it, verses 15 to 24. Ah, or woe, you who hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender. And lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Three parts here. First, verses 15 and 16. Isaiah wants us to know that that your maker is not your plaything. This time the woe or the curse is pronounced on those, verse 15, who hide their intentions from God. They hide their counsel. They do their deeds in the dark where they think no one sees. Isaiah here is addressing the man or the woman who thinks they can do what they want, when they want, how they want, and remain the master of their own fate. This is the student who wouldn't want their parents to know what they really do on campus on Friday nights. This is the homeowner who watches their neighbors through the blinds and complains about them behind closed doors. This is the porn addict who lies to their spouse after promising to come clean on the issue. But even beyond such egregious immorality... This is the person who has gotten so tired of being hurt by people that they refuse to open up anymore to anybody. They're going to hide their counsel, do their deeds in the dark. This is the child or the teenager whose only answer to questions about their day, how was your day? It's, I don't know. Or, I don't remember. I'm going to stay in the dark. I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to let the light shine. I'm not going to share my life this this is the person who doesn't want to become a christian 
because it would affect their chosen lifestyle. And so they bury questions of ultimate meaning and avoid discussions that go into uncomfortable places, like all that stuff in the first 14 verses about aligning our lives with our confession and not just drawing near with our lips. What we need to know is that whenever we choose to hide, whenever we choose to withdraw and protect ourselves, verse 16 says, we are turning things upside down. We are acting as though we are not the clay, but the potter. We are trusting ourselves to be in charge and to remain in control. We reduce God to something we can control and safely tie him up and put him away until we need him. And Isaiah's implied criticism is, your maker is not your plaything. You can't just bottle him up. You can't put him away for safekeeping. You can't live your life as though you are the master and commander of your soul. His second part here, in verses 17 to 21, is that all society will be flipped upside down. Isaiah starts here with a botanical image. He talks about Lebanon, which was an area, this is in verse 17, Lebanon was an area north of Israel that was known for its huge cedar trees, such that cedars of Lebanon became a metaphor in biblical poetry for steadfastness, endurance, and longevity. If you want something that will never change, you're talking about the cedars of Lebanon. And Isaiah says here that it will change. Lebanon will change first into a fruitful field and then into a forest. This botanical metaphor sets him up to explain what he's getting at, the social dimension of God's work on earth. In verses 18 to 21, they explain in colorful language that all those who are low will be lifted high and those who are high will be reduced to lowliness. Society will be flipped upside down. Everything's going to change. Verses 18 and 19, the low get lifted high. The deaf will actually hear. The blind will actually see. The meek, those who are lowly, they will obtain fresh joy and the poor will exult. Verses 20 and 21, he talks about the other side. The high get lowered. The ruthless come to nothing. The scoffer ceases. Those advancing themselves through evil will be cut down. This, in fact, friends, is exactly what Jesus came to do. While he was still in his mother's womb, that young woman, his young mother, said this about God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she ponders this child she's going to give birth to, Jesus. She says, he, the Lord, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And when Jesus was only an infant, there was a a prophet who came in and spoke a prophecy over him who said this, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. What does this have to do with the first point? Hiding and self-protection. The idea is that those who try to hide from God are raising themselves up. This is what letter B has to do with letter A. Those who try to hide are raising themselves up. They are considering themselves stronger and mightier than God. And he must surely 
bring them down to the ground. But those who are willing to put themselves out there, to cast themselves on God's mercy, to be honest about what's going on, to let people into their lives, they trust his patience and his goodness, they will find fresh joy and will be better able to make, make sense of their lives and their world. Let me finish by noting where all of this ends up. The Holy One will be honored, verses 22 to 24. Isaiah ends on this glorious point. Though you cannot make sense of your life by your religious fervor, and though you cannot make sense of your life by self-protection, there is one thing that will absolutely enable you to make sense of your life and to make sense of God's purposes in your life. And this is to behold the amazing God who redeems. Behold the amazing God who redeems. Verse 22, Isaiah holds him up and he says, Thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people. And God promises that his people, Jacob, it's another name for Israel, Jacob will no more be ashamed, not because he sees the work of his own hands, but because they will see God's hand, God's work among them. When they stop following their hearts, when they stop trusting the works of their own hands, and they see the works of their God's hands, verse 23, they will sanctify my name. In other words, they will finally treat me, God, Yahweh, as something special. That's what it means to sanctify him. He's something special. And then at the end of verse 23, when they treat the Holy One of Jacob as something special, they stand in awe of him. Verse 24, then, only then, will those who go astray in spirit come to understanding. See, as long as you hold on to yourself, your wisdom is nullified and it perishes. But when you let go of that and you see your glorious Redeemer, then you will understand. You will come to understanding and you will accept instruction. So only when you stand in awe of your God, contemplating the fact that He rescues you, that He loves you, not because you are the most lovable thing, but simply because he chose to love you. And it's his love that gives you value. It's not your value that makes him love you. When you can look at this world and you see his handiwork, when you look at your life and you see his hand in it, you may not always know the depths of his motives for why he does what he does. We rarely will understand his motives, the why... Why, for example, does he send hurricanes or allow beloved pets to get injured or let good people die tragically before their time? We usually don't know. You won't always understand the why he does such things, but you will have clear understanding that he is the one doing them. He is the potter. We are the clay. We are here for his purposes, and we can trust that his purposes are good and right and just. And that is when we start to see things clearly. That is when the world starts to make sense. How does this apply? You can run, but you can't hide. 
I know it's cliche, but it's true. You can run, but you can't hide. Give up. Please give up your secret life now. Or you will be made to give it up on the last day. Find your lasting joy and your eternal pleasure, not in having power or maintaining control over your life, but find your joy and lasting pleasure in gentleness, vulnerability, and humility because you're finding your joy in your God as you behold the God who redeems. Jesus showed us this way of humility when he chose to die for us. And now we as his people can finally make sense of what God was up to all along. You see, there is real wisdom in dying so you can have resurrection life. There's real wisdom in lowering yourself so you can be exalted. There's real wisdom in serving others so you can become great. The world will never be able to make sense of this. But may our church be known as a church that stands out always for such backwardness. And may our backwardness infect many others. There are two things that will never make sense. Religious fervor and self-protection. But when we honor the Holy One, things just might start to make sense. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the Holy One who sent your only begotten Son that uh, whoever believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. Help us to believe. Help us to align our lives with our confession and to align our, our hearts, our desires with you, our King. We praise Jesus and we love him. He is our only hope. In his name we pray, amen.